0: Digitally Connected People of Earth. I'm Rob Goldstone, editor of Current Directions in Psychological Science. This is our inaugural podcast, and I'm pleased as punch to be able to launch it with a roar. Namely, our premier guest is Professor Cecilia Hayes from the Department of Experimental Psychology at University of Oxford, also Senior Research Fellow in Theoretical Life Sciences at All Souls College at Oxford. The occasion for this podcast is her forthcoming article in Current Directions titled, Psychological Mechanisms Forged by Cultural Evolution. Welcome, Celia. Thank you, Rob, pleasure to be here. So to start us off, let me ask a very broad question that is also very controversial in the field. are humans special or do we just think we are? So I guess dolphins presumably are much less impressed by so-called human achievements. So how should we think about this? Can we get outside of our own skins, so to speak, to reflect objectively on our own uniqueness?
1: I I prefer the word peculiar or odd to Mm -hmm. special because you know when we say our humans special it's a very value-laden term there's a danger that we're going to be a bit smug about who we are but I think if we we think of it as are we peculiar or odd then the answer is yes Um, we are for example way more dependent on cooperation for survival than any other primate We have uh, had a bigger impact on our environments for good and ill than probably any other species. And if you think about the activities that we engage in, um, things like cooking, art, crafts, um, sport, trade, politics, uh, law, science, technology, agriculture, the list of activities goes on, which only we engage in, not any other species. Um, And our minds are, I think, are pretty distinctive. There are cognitive processes that you can find in some sort of trace form, something a bit similar in other species, but they are essentially distinctively human. And of course that includes language and mathematical cognition, but also things like theory of mind, mental time travel, moral cognition, and so on. Um, So, yeah, I think we are pretty peculiar.
0: Okay, great. Um, So if we are peculiar, I guess a a great follow-up question is, how did we get that way? So in your 2018 landmark award-winning book called Cognitive Gadgets, you present an account of where we got to where we are. And a term that you use in that book, and you also use in the current direction articles, which is forthcoming, is the notion of a cognitive gadget. So what exactly do you mean by this gadgetness?
1: Okay, what I mean by a cognitive gadget is a distinctively human cognitive mechanism, Um, a cognitive process, which is found in adult humans um, and is present, if at all, only in some nascent or trace form in other animals, Um, and that we inherit through social interaction, not genetically, um, and that has been made good at doing its job, it's been made adaptive, by a Darwinian natural selection process acting on cultural variants—that that is, on socially inherited things, rather than on genetically inherited things. So, you know, examples would be, I argue, in that book, um, theory of mind, or as it's sometimes known, mentalizing or mind reading, um, a capacity for imitation, language. So I'm using the term cognitive gadget to contrast with Stephen Pinker's cognitive instinct. Cognitive instincts, genetically inherited, made adaptive by natural selection operating on genetic variants, whereas cognitive gadgets, also distinctively human cognitive mechanisms, but socially inherited and made adaptive by cultural evolution.
0: Great, great. So that view about the social interaction being responsible for these uh, cognitive gadgets seems to be somewhat at odds with um, an earlier line of thinking that I associate with um, imitation and like um, Andrew Meltzoff's work suggesting that even neonates have built in an ability to imitate. Have this Has this argument been oversold in your opinion?
1: Yes, I think it has, um, well, oversold may not be fair. I think it's incredibly difficult to do research with newborn infants and the whole claim about genetic inheritance of um, a capacity for imitation depended on research on newborn infants. But there was a study done a couple of years ago in Brisbane, by um, Virginia Slaughter's group, which tested an unprecedented number of newborns um, using the method that Andy Meltzoff introduced for detecting imitation in newborns. Um, And that enormous study, more than 100 infants, found no evidence whatever of newborn imitation. So I think a controversy which has been going on since the late 1970s um, should now be tailing off. It really looks like, you know, we do not genetically inherit a capacity to imitate.
0: Great, okay. Um, Related to this, um, in your article, you make a distinction between domain general and domain specific devices and domain general learning potentially being able to provide an account for activities uh, cognitive capacities that we might have thought would require domain specific abilities can you um, discuss what you mean by domain general learning
1: okay i mean i take Domain general learning processes to um, encode information for long term storage using the same computations, regardless of where the information comes from, regardless of where the inputs come from. So, whether the inputs relate to food or predators or potential sexual partners, um, cooperators or competitors or whatever, wherever the input comes from domain general learning processes encode that information for the long term using the same computations. So reinforcement learning would be a classic domain general learning, uh, type of learning. Um, And, you know, in a complementary way, domain specific processes um, Mm -hmm. deal with inputs from different task domains um, using different computations.
0: So are there cases of um, compelling examples where a domain general learning process suffices when we might have thought we needed to have, uh, you know, uh, a lot of very specific uh, tailored uh, devices to do something when it turns out that you can get away with uh, a much more general learning algorithm?
1: Yeah, I I think a good example is what's known as social learning. Um, Back in the 1980s, it was believed that uh, there's a whole horde of different social learning processes, and that all of them Um, are based on different computations than the ones that we use when we're processing information from the inanimate environment. But there's a lot of evidence from non-human animals and from humans that that just isn't the case. I mean, a a really vivid example, a few years ago, um, Tim Behrens and Matthew Rushworth and their group did work with adult humans, which involved um, modelling of bold responses brain imaging data and they gave people two kind of versions of a choice task and in one version people were getting advice from another agent on which of two options they should choose and in other conditions they were just getting direct feedback as it were from the animate, inanimate world on the success of their previous choices. And that study suggested that the very same prediction error-based processes were involved whether you were processing advice, social information, social learning, or whether you were processing feedback that you got on your own prior choices directly from the world. That the prediction error was being calculated in different neural regions in neighboring areas of anterior cingulate cortex, but the computations were just the same for the social and the asocial learning.
0: Great. Yeah, really interesting, great example.
1: Um, So you have argued for
0: bidirectional influences between cognition and culture, and to many of the members of our audience, it will be very straightforward to think about ways in which our cognition leads to culture. You know, we can't be able to have things like skyscrapers and tapestries, four-part fugues, if we don't have an ability to imagine, to um, plan actions, to revise, etc. But the second part of that bidirectional pipeline, I think, might be a little bit harder for people to think about. So how is it possible for culture to change our cognition? Isn't change of cognition something which is too slow moving through evolutionary time?
1: Um, I think uh, there's a lot of, for example, cross cultural variation in um, things like theory of mind or mind reading, which raised the possibility that change in cognitive mechanisms uh, over time, not just across cultures, but over time, is a lot more rapid than we've tended to assume. That cognitive processes, the distinctively human ones, the gadgets, are more labile than we've previously thought, and that they could be assembled in the course of childhood um, through social interaction. I mean, that case has been made for language by people like Morton Christensen and Nick Chater. They, They advance, you know, in a highly elaborated way, a cultural evolutionary account of the development of language. Um, I've tended to focus instead on imitation, our capacity to copy body movements in a way which is really important for not only acquiring um, technical skills, but also for group cohesion, for developing gestures and postures and gait and so on, which mark us out as a member of one social group rather than another, and therefore kind of entitled to the benefits of group membership.
0: Great. So that makes a lot of sense. So if I'm following you, then you would be predicting that imitation itself should have a long, over the course of a lifetime development. It's not something that's there from neonates. So what are some of the the steps of imitation? How does a baby who is not able to engage in, like, full-figured adult imitation, how are they able to take the steps that will allow them to imitate and thereby allow them to learn more from others?
1: Well, the, the baby is going to start out, is going to genetically inherit... A couple of important components of the architecture that make imitation possible. So, like pretty much all other vertebrates, um, humans genetically inherit the potential for um, perceptual sequence learning. We can encode sequences of observed events and motor sequence learning. In other words, we're capable of motor learning. Those things may be expanded in the human lineage, but those basic processes are common with a whole range of other animals. But in other animals, they're not geared together perceptual sequence learning and motor sequence learning are not geared together in a way that makes imitation possible. I might watch you performing an elaborate sequence of actions. I could recognize it later if I'm shown that among other sequences of action, but that's not going to enable me to do the same thing. What makes, what gears together these two sequence learning processes in humans is learning in childhood, which binds together visual representation, a visual representation of an action with a motor representation of the very same action. So mirror neurons come into play here. I mean, mirror neurons appear to code um, both vision for an action and performance of the same action. And there's evidence that children develop mirror neurons and more abstractly develop these sensory motor links um, through not only observing their own, say, hands in motion, but also through synchronous drills and games, things like patter cake, the game patter cake that adults play with kids, that gives kids the opportunity simultaneously to see an action and to perform the same action. So it is concurrently activating the visual and the motor representation, forging an excitatory link between the two. Similarly, being imitated, when kids are imitated by adults, Again, those visual motor representations are being forged, which is linking together visual sequence learning and motor sequence learning into a a whole architecture, which makes imitation possible.
0: Great, great. That's that's a terrific description. Um, I will no longer view imitation as uh, the last resort. Of dull and dimwitted individuals, but it's actually an intellectual and developmental achievement.
1: Absolutely.
0: Um, so, my goal is to keep these podcasts short, all substance, no unnecessary pleasantries. No advice for budding psychologists. (laughs) So with that in mind, I'm going to finish this off with one last question that does perhaps involve a little bit of gratuitous speculation um, and admittedly will not end this podcast on a feel-good, optimistic high point. But imagine that our current political mayhem leads to a specific and theoretically interesting kind of apocalypse. Imagine an apocalypse in which all human cultural products, our highways, our cell phones, every book ever written, um, even the Sunday Times, are suddenly erased from existence. And also imagine that every human's memory for all things cultural is erased we keep our ability to walk in, to reach for objects that we want to reach for. Um, but perhaps the powers that be that ushered in the apocalypse don't want the inconvenient whistleblowers to have their memories. So um, we'll remember the things that we learned on our own, but we won't remember anything which is a product of our cultural immersion. So the question is, how long would it take human culture to re-establish itself in various guises in various places, perhaps. And I'm asking this question as a way of seeing how much is biologically built in versus part of our cultural immersion.
1: Mm. I mean, this is a very interesting, but um, as you intimated, really a very sobering question. I mean, if you... Um, subscribe to a very traditional evolutionary psychology, Uh, this scenario is going to be bad, but um, humans are going to recover pretty quickly because every new human who's born is going to have on board a program for the development specifically of language, of the capacity to imitate, of the capacity to think about other minds and so on. So you'd expect things to get on track pretty quickly. But um, if, as I argue, these distinctively human cognitive mechanisms are gadgets rather than instincts, if they're products of cultural evolution, then there's really no guarantee that we would get back on track at all. So we would be, compared with other apes, we would be um, peculiarly attentive to other agents from birth, uh, looking at their faces, listening to their voices. Um, We would be, compared with other apes, unusually socially tolerant and motivated for social rewards. That's something else which I think is in our genes. And we might have expanded capacities, um, working memory, associative learning capacity, perhaps sequence learning ability relative to other apes. So we would be smart, social apes. But there's really no guarantee that we would survive long enough to uh, re-establish culture. Um, So, you know, say Richard Wrangham is right that we are now physiologically dependent on cooked food. Um, It's possible that, you know, we wouldn't get control of fire back in time um, to begin the very slow, contingent process of recovering cultural practices which co-evolved with um, cognitive mechanisms to give us anything like the complex cultural tapestry that we have now. It's a very sobering question.
0: Okay. All the more important for voting in the, the next election cycle, then. (laughs) um well here's hoping that that thought experiment is just idle speculation and that we won't have a chance in the next five years to to put your theory to to the empirical test um so my final plug is that if you enjoyed hearing uh what professor hayes had to say and you want to hear more she will be the keynote cognitive science speaker at this year's annual meeting of the Cognitive Science Society in Toronto, Canada from July 29th through August 1st, along with other keynotes by Jeffrey Hinton and Janet Worker. Um, So with that, I wanted to say thank you very, very much, Dr. Hayes, for your your brilliant ideas and your uh, promotion of cognitive
1: science and psychological science over the years. My pleasure. Thank you very much, Rob.